0: This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. It's the basis for the sermon at First Free Methodist Church in Seattle on May 14, 2023. It's the fifth message in our series called Unstrung, about how we find God's truth in the midst of disorientation. Let's begin by hearing the text, beginning at verse 15 of John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, "'If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, so that he may be with you forever.'" The helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. After a little while, the world no longer is going to see me, but you are going to see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my father and you are in me, and I in you. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will reveal myself to him. We want to begin looking at these statements of Jesus about his love, and how this love is related to the keeping of commandments. It's Primarily the theme of verse 15 and also verses 20 and 21 about love, obedience, and devotion. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's important that we examine the grammar of this verse very carefully because it is not communicating to us a condition of being loved it is a more it's more about the evidence and the cause. In this case, if we love Jesus, it will be made manifest in our obedience. Obedience is the evidence of that love for Jesus. It's a value of behaviors above statements. And so this teaching, especially in verse 15, is carried through to the end of the passage where Jesus speaks of this love once more in verses 20 and 21. It is this love that forms a a triad of relationships between us, Jesus, and the Father. Now take note here that Jesus uses the plural and not the singular when referring to his disciples. He doesn't tell his disciples as individuals what's going to happen. He talks to them as a group of people as a group of individuals in verses 20 and 21, where he says, On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you." where it says you are in me. That word you, that's translated, of course, in English, uh, is the second person pronoun. It's actually plural. And we don't have in English a plural and a singular difference between you, except in uh, the American South, as known as y'all. And so when we're reading sometimes the translation of Greek into English, we lose uh, some of the nuances of the text. So in some ways, Jesus is saying this, On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and all of you are in me, and I in you. Jesus talks about how he is in the Father, and that's perfect love expressed in obedience. And that's what we've seen throughout the Gospel of John when Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father. Now Jesus goes on and says, you are in me, which means perfect love expressed in obedience to Jesus. And then Jesus says, and I in you. Perfect love, again, expressed in obedience. This triad of relationships is so critically important for us to hear and pay attention to. Jesus elaborates even further. He says, that the one who has my commandments and keeps them. Notice the tense of those verbs, has my commands and keeps them. These are, the, the, the grammar here is so unusual in that he's not saying, the, not the ones who will keep my commands or will keep them or is keeping my commands and is keeping them. He says, has my commands and keeps them, is the one who loves me. There's a sense in which Jesus is helping us understand that this is an action that occurs in the past but moves into the present. It's part of the reality in which we live. And that obedience here is not a matter, is not a means, I should say, of being loved. It is the evidence of love. And this is such a critical orient, reorientation. This is about a graceful, loving relationship with God that leads to obedience. This is not about legalism. Loving Jesus by having and keeping his commandments, is being loved by the Father. Jesus' love leads then to revelation, as he gets to in the end of verse 21. He says, The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. So this is what the essence of the Son is in the Trinity. The essence of the Son is to be incarnate, to be revealed, So when that love relationship is working, Jesus is incarnate among us, or is real in our midst, revealed, if you will. That opens a key passageway for us here, that the love of God is not earned, but is evidenced. This is perhaps the most confusing part of Christian spirituality, but it's also one of the most important parts. Yeah, you might remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there was a, a popularized statement that went around that was embracing in, in bracelets, and it said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? This theological statement, oftentimes, of asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do, kind of misses the point of grace and love. We are not legalists who simply try to obey what Jesus said. That's not what this text is teaching us. As a matter of fact, this text is teaching us quite the opposite. The idea here is that we're to love Jesus. And by loving Jesus, being in union and communion with Jesus, we become like him in every way. We experience sanctification. Or as uh, John Wesley would say, entire sanctification. We are made perfect in love. Love comes first. We know it is there if obedience is evidenced, not the other way around. There are many times that we obey out of fear or out of the the fear of non-compliance. This is different. Love is first and love is reflected by our natural desire to obey every word that Jesus has said, not the other way around. We turn our attention to the middle of this text in verses 16 and 17, where Jesus speaks of this helper. It says, I will ask the Father in verse 16, and he will give you another helper. God will give another helper. This is such a, in the New American Standard Bible, it's such a terrible translation, uh, with all due respect to the translators, because one can't blame them because this is an impossibly difficult word to translate out of Greek into English. All English words um, for this word are really not a good translation because the word is much more sophisticated and nuanced than that, and so I in some ways, I wish we would just actually use the Greek word uh, because it, it gives us all of the nuance, but that 's difficult to suggest. The word is paraclete paraclete that 's the word here. I will ask a father and he will give you another paraclete. The word paraclete is as kind of a compound word in Greek. Uh, pada, which means uh, like uh, with or uh, according to or alongside, and then cleat or kaleo, that's the Greek word for call. So paraclete means to call alongside. You see what I mean? That's not really a helper as much as it is uh, the person who comes along our side. It's not the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this word paraclete is often used as a legal term for a defense attorney, not the prosecutor, but for the defense attorney in any kind of tribunal. But this still doesn't convey the capture the, the fullness of the meaning of paraclete here. Jesus is telling us that, that our capacity, as we just talked about, to love leading to obedience is only possible with divine leadership. So the paraclete will come to not only support, but to lead the lives of believers in fulfilling their call to love. The paraclete is not given to the world writ large. It is given to those, Jesus says, who see him and know him. So what's unique here about the paraclete is that the paraclete, he says, will remain with you and in you. Again, these are plural pronouns, not you as individuals, but we as a group. So the notion of individualism here is not present. As a matter of fact, when we hear Christians oftentimes talk about our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit inhabits us, this is true, but only in as much as we're part of the community. There's never a promise about the Holy Spirit given to one person. Rather, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is that it's given to the community of Jesus. And something else to notice is that whenever the The impartation of the Holy Spirit is spoken of, in at least within Jewish scriptures, what we commonly call the Old Testament. It's that the Spirit of God came and went from people. It would oftentimes say that the Spirit of the Lord was upon somebody. And so the way in which the Spirit's presence was conveyed was always almost like an anointing resting upon them, and that Spirit could come and go. Note the change in prepositions here as John writes this gospel in Jesus' words. Uses these words of with and in, such important words to pay attention to that the Spirit is with and in us. And that opens a key passageway. God calls us to be like Jesus and gives us the capacity to do so. You know, sometimes our False humility gets in the way here. We think that God can't do very much with us. When we say things like that, it's almost the same as telling God that God can't do something. And the community of Jesus has the paraclete. Not individuals, but to the whole body of Christ, we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So our acts of community allow us to be formed into the image of Jesus. In the same way that God gives us prevenient grace, in other words, the grace that comes to us that leads us to the point of of a breakthrough or salvation, God also gives us grace to experience that justification, that cleansing from sin, that sense of being renewed and saved by the Holy Spirit in the, the mighty name of Jesus. It's that same Holy Spirit, that same grace that comes to us in a sanctifying movement. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here, is that the Spirit comes to come alongside us to help us become the very image of Jesus in the world. Such an important truth for us to hear. There's no going alone in this. There's no individualism about this. This is about how we either go together or we don't go at all in becoming very much in every way like Jesus. Well, finally, we turn to these other middle verses, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus describes His presence with the disciples, like in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you are going to see me because I live, you also will live. Jesus speaks here about his post-Easter appearances to his disciples. Remember, John 14 contains a passage of Scripture where Jesus is speaking to his disciples before his crucifixion, even before his trial. And so John puts together these statements of Jesus in a way that helps us hear John chapter 14 and the chapters that follow as Jesus's parting words, if you will, to the disciples. And he says, first, I won't leave you orphaned. So imagine that statement. It's given the night before Jesus's death when he very much leaves them. He tells them, I am not going to leave you orphaned. In other words, they're not going to be abandoned. And then he says, I am coming to you. And this is not so much a reference to the second coming of Jesus because Jesus frames it with this temporal language in a little while. It has more to do with something much more immediate, something that was going to happen in a matter of days or even hours. And what Jesus is talking to them about is his post-resurrection appearances. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Jesus is going to go through death and he's going to come to them. And he certainly does. As we read in John's gospel, in John chapter 20, Jesus comes to them in the empty tomb, meets Mary Magdalene there, later meets the disciples in the upper room, later has these experiences with the disciples, even in John 21 by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And then Jesus says the world does not see him in the same way that the world doesn't see the paraclete. That's in verse 17. And he tells his disciples then that his life is imputed to them. So there's a way in which they're going to receive life from him in a way that is unique and compelling and powerful, a way the world doesn't see it or the world can receive it, but the believers will. Jesus says, because I live, you also shall live. Such a great and powerful promise Jesus delivers to these disciples just before his betrayal and crucifixion. There will be comfort, there'll be visions, there'll be grace. For the season that they're about to face for the next three days. While Jesus is absent, they can have confidence of his return and in the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. That this passage outlines a dramatic act of provision by God for the life of the disciples going forward. This isn't a matter of a prophet coming and going, this is a matter of Jesus coming, coming to his disciples again after his resurrection and then giving to them the gift of the Holy Spirit so that his presence might remain with them always. This opens a key passageway for us, that God's essential nature is to love by giving. Here again, we read the story of God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. God is a God who gives. And if we're to hear the command of this passage correctly, it means the exact same thing for us. We are called to love by giving. This means that our, our goal in Christian, Christian spirituality is to love through the gifts that we give. In many ways, this is the essential act of obeying Jesus. It's not something he said alone. It's, of course, something he did, he embodied. And that's really our challenge as well. If God's essential nature is to love by giving, then our work as the followers of Jesus is to do very much the same thing. Out of a deep love and affection for Jesus, it is to love this world by giving of ourselves to it. We're to be missionally-minded people. We are not focused on the survival of institutions and structures and systems. That doesn't mean they're to be discarded, but our focus is always aligning those systems and structures so they advance the mission Jesus has given each and every one of us, which is to love by giving in the same way God has done for us. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear them. You can visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News on the upper right-hand corner, and then on the drop-down menu, you'll see Podcasts. If you click on that, then you can click on an individual episode and leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I'd also encourage you to visit our website, ffmc.org. It stands for First Free Methodist Church.org, or to get our app at the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. Our app is called FFMC, so you can learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.